Our teaching text this morning is Romans 8, 1 to 4. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. You might remember me from the How Does a Church Work Minute. (laughs) Just not that long ago. Back here to deliver the sermon now. Hey, would you guys uh, do me a quick, quick favor? Um, my oldest friend, Matthew, uh, who I grew up with, was going to be here this morning, and uh, he's visiting New York, and um, uh, is just like come down with something really like awful pain, sickness thing, and so he's at the Roosevelt ER right now in Midtown. Uh, so I just want to take like two seconds. I mean, I know there's probably other people sick too, so you can pray for them. Let's just take like a moment of silence and pray for my friend Matthew. Thank you. Amen. I'm going to just let you in a little behind the scenes pastor life here. We have lenses through which we think through the sermon. And uh, my friend Matthew is one of my lenses. He and I um, grew up together, explored all the off-limits parts of the world together when we were younger, got into a mess of trouble, uh, went to college together. And then in college, our sort of paths parted ways. And um, his... He wouldn't, I don't think he would characterize his life of faith exactly the same way I would characterize mine. Um, and uh, so you think about preparing a sermon with your longest, your longest friend who knows all the skeletons in the closet. And uh, so he, he was a, a, a voice or a listener as I prepared the sermon and now he's not here. So um, maybe there's some other Matthews out there that this will benefit. But um, we're going to get into the heart of God's plan for human beings. I know it's a pretty grand thing to get into, but it's, it's Pentecost Sunday. And on Pentecost Sunday, we remember and celebrate that God has given us His Spirit. That a, a culmination, a culmination of God's plan in the world is that people would be filled with the life of God. And just let that spark in your imagination for just a minute. Like, God's plan for the world, among many other things, but this is a, a, one of the, near the apex, is that you and I would be able to be filled in our inner being with the life of God, to be in such intimacy with God that his life is in our life. Now, I, I recognize in a room like this, you might still need convincing on that. It may sound mystical to you or absurd or wonderful, but this is at least, if you read and, and, and we're going to do something today where we're going to trace a line through, through the scriptures. We've done things like this before. And it's very faith-building to me to see, here's this, 
66 books of the Holy Scriptures, uh, Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, and the themes that run through them across different authors and different time periods and different writing styles. And the way you can sort of follow the thread is pretty incredible, pretty faith-building if you allow it to be that in your heart. But at least one of the major claims of the scriptures across the whole breadth of them is that God has been in the process of making it possible for us to become people who are full of his Holy Spirit. So the second chapter of Acts is the classic Pentecost text where those scared, afraid disciples um, have been locked away in a room for a few weeks after, or for a few days after the ascension of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes and fills the room and fills their lives, and they pour out a testimony about who Jesus is, and many are drawn to that. Spirit fills the life of his followers, and many more who believe in the life and message of Jesus. So Acts 2 is the birth of the church. And it's very important to remember that. That's, that's the church, this community full of the Holy Spirit. Not just this community that remembers the life of Jesus and tries with all its might to imitate it. Because that would be a very exhausted and frustrated community. It's a community filled with the life of God. That's when the church was born, when the Spirit came at Pentecost. So, we're not... You may have noticed from the teaching text, we didn't read the Acts 2 story. We have many years in the past, and we will many years in in the future. But this year, we're going to look in detail over the next six weeks at Romans 8 in small chunks. Because where Acts 2 is the narrative account of the Holy Spirit coming, Romans 8 is like a user's manual for what life with the Holy Spirit indwelling your life looks like. How on earth does it work that the Spirit of God would fill a human life. Romans 8 is a manual for that, for how to apply this most dramatic plan God has been working throughout redemptive history. So we're going to spend May and June taking this chapter, Romans 8, in small chunks. And we come this, this week to this, this first huge statement of Romans chapter 8. What does it look like to live with the Spirit of God in your life? And it begins with this, and thank God that it does. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are full of the Holy Spirit, here's the brief summary of the two essential claims of these first four verses. If you are full of the Holy Spirit, you are free from condemnation, and you have all that life requires. Freedom and fullness. Now the reason we're not bowing our heads and closing our eyes to end the service right there is our experience. Is that many of us don't live with an experience of utter freedom and fullness. Right? We, we, we live with many voices of shame and inner critique and, and fear and insecurity and division and blame shifting and addiction and lies and anxieties and depression. And we don't live with the, the, the law, the spirit of life setting us free. And then we also live with a scarcity mentality that we don't have enough and that we never are going to. So we've got to press in to this. Now. That's essentially it. That's where we're going to land the plane in just, you know, however long it takes us to get there. Well, it won't be too bad. Um, but I was asking this question of myself. Why, why can I read something like 
There's no condemnation. There's utter freedom for those who are in Christ Jesus, and they have all that they need for, for, for life. The full requirement of life has been, has been met. Why does that not land on my heart and make me come alive? Well, I don't know all the answers, but I, th- I thought of one that's sort of embedded in this text that I want, I want us to draw out and explore a little bit together. And it's that I wonder if we really believe in something called the law of sin and death. My, my experience in moving throughout our borough, moving throughout our, our time in history, having coffees with many people is... Being inside of my own heart and reading my own journaled thoughts is that many of us believe there is a principle of bad choices and unpleasant consequences. We believe in the principle of bad choices and unpleasant consequences, not the law of sin and death. It's just too dramatic, it's too intense. It's too hard to imagine our choices in, 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 in that kind of scope. We may believe, we, we believe there's a reality of we struggle. We struggle, of course. And out of that struggles comes all types of pain. But the law of sin and death. But I, don't, I think if, if we don't grasp what the law of sin and death is, then the freedom that this passage is offering is going to fall light on our hearts. So, I'm going to try to convince you that the law of sin and death exists. Great. Buckle up. It's going to be fun. Okay? So let's trace this line together. We'll start with God, right? We have uh, God, in the beginning, God. And, and then, we, and then we, we learn through the revelation of the scriptures that this, this God, this one God, this God who reveals himself to the children of Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And yet this God mysteriously, paradigm-shatteringly, exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Come, at the beginning, God, the one God says, come, let us make mankind in our own image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So this relational being, before there was any creation, creating the world out of this overflow of joy in relationship with himself. This God pours out in creation. The, the adjectives used to describe the creation of this God are teeming, abundant, beautiful, And at the apex of his creation, he makes human beings, which are a part of this natural world that he's made, but breathe through full of his life. At the apex of creation is a spiritual being called human that is created with the capacity. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? At least created with the capacity for relationship with the God who made them. So, that's the situation for our earliest ancestors. Life is God-breathed. God is the source of life. But very early on, and right, we've gone round and round about this. Why is this opportunity even presented? We're not going to answer that question right now. It's too complicated. But they have a choice, which seems on some level connected to how love works, that there's choice involved in love always. And they have an opportunity to trust the character of the God who's given them life and who is the source of their life or not. And temptation enters the story and deception enters the story. And essentially our earliest ancestors make a choice to try to meet a perceived need that was suggested in temptation. Did God really say? Oh, it's not really like that, right? The first temptation is a calling into question the character of God. Calling into question the source of life. And so... 
they make this choice to meet a need that they perceive in their life that they don't think they're going to get from God because they've been tempted to believe that God's withholding it from them. And they believe that deception and they fall into the temptation. And this is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. And it's introduced right at the beginning, right after creation in Genesis 3. Meeting the needs of your own life without God involved. Now, if you've been around Trinity Grace, you've heard me say that so many times. But here's why it's so devastating. When you sin, when you try to meet the deep needs of your life, or the, need, the perceived, even if they're shallow needs, <laughs> the needs of your life without God involved, that's called sin. Sin is a separation from God. It's a separation from his words, from his instructions, from his character. And when you separate from the source of life, enter death. And so death comes into the human story very early on. And you see, I I see right there in the essence, right, a lot of times we reduce sin in church circles down to like a list of rule-keeping things. But the heart of it is God saying, I am the source of your life, and I want to give you fullness and abundance and teeming, beautiful life with me. Please don't settle for anything less than that. And sin is in in a magnificent variety of ways settling for less than that invitation from God. That's the essence C.S. Lewis, as he so marvelously does, summarizes this for us. And you've heard this quote before, but it's just so good that you have to hear it again. It was put into the heads of our remote ancestors the idea that they could be like gods. That they could set up on their own as if they created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery. The long, terrible story of men trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Our first ancestors, right at the moment of that sin, experienced a spiritual death. Right? We know they're still walking around physically in the garden. We know that they go on to have generations of people follow after them. Hence, here we all are. But they had that special capacity that they had for internally communing with God went out. And we know it because they're running around scared. For the very first time, insecurity and fear and doubt and blame shifting. And, and, and they, from that point forward, find themselves moving east of Eden, moving away from that divine center of life. Spiritual death begins to pour out in their life story into physical death. Cain murders Abel, right? Cities are constructed and fortified and defended, and the conflict of the human story grows out of this brokenness in our relationship with God. So, for From Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, the things are messed up in so many ways. This this story of brokenness goes on and on and on. And then something interesting happens in Genesis 11. Babel. You you remember the story? Not the one with Brad Pitt that came out, but like biblical story, Babel. It's so interesting when you pay attention to the language of what's happening at the story of the Tower of Babel, which is basically like all the people in the world at that time are speaking the same language and they get together with this common desire and and they summarize their desire in a statement in the story. Come, let us build build ourselves a city 
with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered, scattered over the face of the earth. So, I want you just to pay attention. And w- what we're doing, remember, is we're tracing the, the, the law of sin and death through the human story, through the biblical narrative. And Babel is a crucial moment to understand because here's human beings doing what? Longing for community? Let's stay together. Longing for the divine, let's build a tower to heaven. Longing for prominence, significance. I want my name, I want our name to be remembered, to matter. Let's make a name for ourselves. And a longing for control. Let's do it our way. We've got all we need right here. We don't e- and so they begin a project, a life project without God involved. Now, many of us have a babble. We have a life project we're building to get community, to touch the divine, to get, our, get something attached to our name that's significant, and to keep control. Many of us have towers we've erected at the center of our lives for those needs to be met. God had commanded Adam and Eve, if you remember, to fill the whole earth. Fill the earth. And and the Babel story, they're trying to huddle together and stay in one place. So God does an act of judgment, and it's a profoundly difficult judgment to swallow, but it's also an act of mercy. He messes up their plans by changing their languages. And so everyone shows up to work one day in building this great city and building this great tower, and people speak different languages. Uh, there, this story, when we dedicate, uh, dedicate babies to God and we give parents a Bible, we give them the Jesus Storybook Bible which has uh, all the Old Testament accounts and, and, and w- with the thread of Jesus woven through. How many of you guys read the Jesus Storybook Bible? It's dynamite. When you have kids, get yourself one. Even now, you're allowed. Um, the, the Babel story is one of my boy's favorites. Because uh, I, may have t- I think I've actually told you guys this before. But um, in the story, the workers show up at the Tower of Babel to work. And they say, one of them says, oh, hello there, good morning. But the person hears, hush up, you're boring. And then he punches him in the face. And my boys just die laughing every time we read that story. They're like, read the hush up, you're boring story. Oh my gosh, he punched him again. This is crazy. God halts their grand project of trying to do life without him. And it's important on Pentecost to remember Babel. Because Pentecost is the anti-Babel. It's God's answer to Babel. Where their plans are confused because no one can understand one another and they end up scattered, God draws them together and allows everyone to hear his message of love and redemption, each in their own language, and then to be scattered out of this mission of love. Here's heaven's answer to the the Babel story, to that culmination of, of sort of that initial history of the law and sin and death that begins in the garden that goes to Babel. The very next chapter, by the way, Genesis 12, God begins a restoration project that will span the whole world, and he begins it in a specific place with a specific man named Abraham, and he says, come, follow me. I'm going to make you a family. I'm going to make you a nation, and through this nation, I'm going to show what I'm like to the rest of the world, and then through this nation, I'm going to bring a Messiah that will spill my redemption over the banks of Israel to every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. That's what happens, starts happening in Genesis 12. So Babel is a key moment, right? It's the moment right before covenant begins. 
And heaven's answer at Pentecost is, I will come and fill your life. You'll never build a tower high enough. I will do whatever is necessary to come and fill your life because your towers are never going to reach. And every structure that crops up in the rest of the Bible, in the, in the, in the rest of the Old Testament, is God dealing with his people around this, this, this thing that's in our story now, this law of sin and death. Not the, not the principle of bad choices and unpleasant consequences. I heard a, a preacher that I, I love and respect one time say, sin doesn't make you bad. It makes you dead. And sin, the law of sin and death, had entered the human story. And so we get Israel's sacrificial system, right? Why? What's such a barbaric thing? Why would God allow that? Because sin, going against God's ways and character, separating from him is so serious that we need to see the consequences of it are actually death. And so instead of the human beings dying for every one of their sins, someone lies and they drop down, we have this system of seeing the cost, a sacrificial system of absorption of the cost, and that was in Israel's temple. The temple system, a picture of people made for communion with God, made to live with his presence and have his presence fill them, and yet there are so many barriers in the temple to getting to God. Israel's sacrificial system and Israel's temple system our, our attempts at meeting those, those deep needs that were fractured in the very beginning when the law of sin and death entered our story. God gives his instructions. Here's what full life will look like and no one can keep them. The, the phrase in Romans 8, the sentence for this is, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. God did. Let me read the passage to you one more time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There's so much slammed in to those four sentences. And it's helpful for us to see the weight of the law of sin and death because of course we weren't going to be able to get to God on our own. So God accomplished our redemption by sending his son. Jesus fully shows us God in the life of a person. That's what Jesus is doing. What does the life of God look like in the soul of a person? Jesus, fully and completely. What does the kingdom of God look like coming in the world as it is in heaven? Jesus, demonstration after demonstration of what that looks like. He met Right? So think of those systems, the law, the sacrificial system, the temple that had, had sort of guided Israel through that wandering time. Jesus meets every one of them. He met every requirement of the law, showing us fully how to walk in the way of God's kingdom in the world. He ended the sacrificial system. 
Jesus ended Israel's sacrificial system. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, there's a scapegoat lamb, and then there's a lamb that dies in our place. The scapegoat lamb, the priest lays his hands on the, on the goat and, and, and confesses all the sins of the people, and then that lamb is led away, taking the sins away, right? Then the, 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 the lamb of sacrifice is this pure, spotless lamb is killed, and the wages of sin, right, the result of this death that comes from our brokenness with God is laid on this lamb. And Jesus comes and John the Baptist looks at him and says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is so, so important that he dies outside of the city, scapegoat. And that his blood is shed, pure sacrificial lamb, for the sins of the people. And this is the final one. This is it. Now God himself has entered the story and fully absorbed on himself every single sin that you and I would ever commit. And so Jesus cries out on the cross, not, I almost did it. He cries out, it is finished. It is accomplished. It is done. And he declares with that cry, freedom. Freedom from the law of sin and death. But not just because you look back on that decisive historical moment. I'm literally going to make you clean. And so we have the sacrificial system ending. We also have the temple system ending. In the account of Jesus dying on the cross, this huge like foot thick curtain that separated the holiest of holies in the temple from the rest. All the barriers that you had to go through. The court of the Gentiles and where only men could go and then where only priests could go and then where only one priest could go and only once a year. And if he was clean, they were literally so intimidated about it, they tied a rope to his leg in case he dropped dead in the presence of God, someone could drag him back out. The holiest of holies. And in that place, the temple veil was torn. Not so that tourists could go into it but so that the Spirit would come out and make you a temple. Pentecost, the anti-Babel, the end of the requirements of the law, the end of the sacrificial system, and the making of a temple that is you and me and the church. God did what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Now, what is the flesh? It's not the skin and the bones. It's not sensual desire per se. The flesh, when the Bible talks about it, is that construct of meeting your needs apart from God. We could never, even with all these other systems to hold us in the road, we could never do it. We're always swerving into the tree with our desires. But what we could never do, God did. And so at Pentecost, here's what happens. This is what Romans 8 is describing. It's the manual. You've become the temple. Your sins have been cleansed by the final sacrifice of Jesus. God's ways, his instructions, his word, are now written on your hearts. Isn't that so much better than having to, having just to go read about it, to have the, the voice of the spirit whispering in your life? Babel is undone. Where Babel, we have confusion. At Pentecost, we have the Holy Spirit at tra- as, as a translator of God's love for every person. At Babel, we're huddled together with our best resources and it wasn't enough. And at Pentecost, we are filled to overflowing and sent into all corners of the world to sound the trumpet of God's love. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. To everyone and all those languages and all those cultures and all those colors... God's kingdom is stretching out in redemptive love because 
we're filled with his life. And what does that mean? What kind of people could go out from Jerusalem or go out from this room filled with the life of God to trumpet God's love to our world? What would have to be true of them? Well, they need to know when they begin to wrestle with guilt and shame and fear that there's no condemnation. That everything necessary for their redemption has been accomplished by Jesus. They would need to know that. And they would also need to know that they have everything necessary for life. (laughs) They have the fullness of God's spirit with them. So whatever circumstances they find themselves in, or whatever moods they find themselves in, they know that their life isn't dependent on their circumstances or their moods. (laughs) That their life is dependent on this, this wellspring of God's life present in them. They are not condemned. They are free. And they are not lacking or scarce, they are full. Now go into the world and trumpet the love of God. We have that internal voice of, I'm never going to be enough. My failures define me. What God sees about me and probably what people see about me is my worst moments. And then we have, unfortunately, right when we begin to think maybe that's not true, then someone treats us really bad and we're like, I knew it. Other people don't like me. They literally didn't like my photo. And so we imagine, well, God must think the same. The voice of the declaration of you are free, there is no condemnation, has to warm our hearts, has to impact how we relate to one another, and has to, we have to understand that the highest authority in all the world has said you're free, you're clean, you're healed, you're mine. Where guilt and shame have shaped our story, God is saying freedom. And where scarcity has shaped our our story, God is saying, I will fill you. But we circle back around to this, where we started. Why don't I experience that? What's keeping you from walking around in a powerful sense of freedom and a powerful sense of fullness? Well, I don't know exactly. But I have couple of guesses. One, you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the hard part. Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Many of us have heard the ideas. We've had the buzz of agreement to them. We'd really like for that to be our life, but we've never been willing to surrender that babble control of meeting our own needs in our own way and letting the Spirit of God fill our life. We've never maybe counted what Jesus has done as counting for us. It's nice for someone else. And so you sit in the stream of people hearing, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because you love the idea so much, you imagine that you are in Christ Jesus, but there's never been a moment where you fully surrendered your life to Christ. And so you're very disillusioned with the Christian experience because you're trying to live it without the Holy Spirit. That's impossible. So what do you do if that's your situation? Respond to love. Realize that what Jesus has done is for you. That that whatever fear or failure or lies or addictions or anything that you're wrestling with, they're not more powerful than God's love. To think so is a sort of form of pride. My sins are so strong that God's love doesn't count for them. 
That's just a way of focusing things on you. Realize that what Jesus has done is for you and declare that you want him, that you have a need for him, that you welcome him as a redeemer in your life, that you want what he's done on the cross and his death and resurrection to be yours, that you want new life in him. And I, I promise you, if you declare that, even if you don't cry and tremble, that he, he promises to give you his Holy Spirit, that the work of Jesus accomplished on the cross makes you clean so that you can be a dwelling place for God, so that you can be a temple. So one reason you might not be experiencing this freedom and this fullness is that you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one. Another is you have been. Some of you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You are believers. You are in the kingdom of God. You've been adopted. You've had moments where you've known that. But you're living off two years ago when you had a profound encounter with God. And it's been a long time. So what happens And it can happen in one day or it can happen in one year. Is that you drift back to the patterns of your flesh. Again, not your skin or sensual desire. Your mechanisms for meeting the needs of your life out of your own resources. And you've just gotten back to living without being really aware of God. So you're not experiencing the fullness and the freedom available to you. Because you're basically still operating out of the flesh. How do I tell? Super quick examination metric. Your life is one of striving. You're trying to build Babel-like towers by effort. And one of the ways you see it is this little cycle, right? We've talked about this before. I'm going to, I want more than my life has right now. I want freedom, I want fullness. I'm going to try harder. So I'm going to get out there, I'm going to do more church stuff, I'm going to read more Bible, I'm going to pray, or maybe it's not a religious thing at all. Like, I'm going to go to work more, I'm going to exercise harder, I'm going to eat better, right? Then fatigue sets in about week three. And you're exhausted, and you don't really want to do it anymore, so you throw up your hands and you quit. But then you realize you wanted freedom and you wanted fullness. (laughs) And so you feel guilty. (laughs) Like, it's never going to be for me. I'm going to try harder. This time I'm really going to try harder, and I've got a plan. Our life is one of striving. Try harder. Fatigue. Quit. Guilt. Try harder. Fatigue. Quit. Guilt power of the Holy Spirit's inviting you out of that cycle. It's inviting you to rest and, hey, my beloved, I've done everything necessary for you to be loved forever, to be mine forever, to be adopted into the family, to experience the fullness of the kingdom. Hear me say over your life, there's no condemnation. You're free. But also hear me say, I'm willing to give you the fullness of life. Not fullness of life in the way the world describes it, but fullness of life in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those things pouring out of your character. And if you don't have all the material things that you might want, but you have those things, you have full life. So the invitation is, have you ever been filled with the Holy Spirit? If not, This morning is for you. And if you know you have encountered the Holy Spirit and been filled by the Holy Spirit, but you've fallen back into this cycle of striving, of living out of just your own resources and not dwelling with God on a day-to-day basis, come back to Him. There's so many stories for what that looks like when you come back to God and you think He's going to be like, "Ah, so disappointed in you, this long list of things. He's running out to you to embrace you, to put a 
a luxurious coat on you, to put a ring on your finger, and to throw a party. When you return to God, he's running out to you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let the Spirit who gives life set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. We're just getting into this. This is the first four verses and I don't have them ranked but one of the best chapters in the whole Bible. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, come and receive. Come and drink deeply. If it's the first time or the 500th time, God is running out to you. Receive his embrace. Let go of your rehearsed speeches and just receive his love. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, you know my own sin my own brokenness, my own failures, my own insecurities. And I believe that you're able to speak through all of that week after week to overwhelm us, that your love covers a multitude of sins, that your Holy Spirit is the one that we need, not another sermon. So I pray, Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, that because of what Christ has done, you would pour out your Spirit on your people, that whatever we've protected ourselves with, whether it's apathy or doubt or fear or insecurity or habits of thought and behavior, whatever has been the, the barrier, would you break through those barriers like you came through the walls of the room and showed the disciples your resurrection? Would you pour out your spirit on your church? Would you pry open our hands that are gripping onto our lives for all our might? Would you pry them open so we can receive your embrace and receive your love? Would you speak to the deepest corners of our spirits and souls? There's no condemnation. You're free. You have all you need in me. Would you do what only you can do by the power of your spirit in these moments? Help us respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give you just a few minutes to pray whatever's on your heart to God in the quietness of your seat. And then in just a few moments, we'll be led in worship and to the communion table together where we'll share in this meal. Be honest with yourself and with God in these moments and ask him how he would have you respond.